Jonah, I want to read chapter 1 together. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid. And cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, And lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men offered the Lord, feared the Lord exceedingly. And offered sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights. Well, again, we trust that the Lord will add his blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we tonight rejoice again in the gatherings of your people. At the close of this Sabbath, we're grateful to lift, Lord, these songs of testimony tonight of being the undeserving recipients of grace, to be able to ponder and join into that refrain always. 
Thou lovest me. Lord, what manner of love you have bestowed upon us. When we were yet sinners, rebels, you gave your Son for us. Lord, grant us grace tonight. We consider something more of the life and experience of this prophet that we might glean from what you have chosen to record for us of his history and that we might, these things written before for our learning, not follow in his sins and yet truly follow in his penitence and in his faith. So Lord, undertake and prosper these moments we share. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We have been saying as we've come in particular to address the prophecy of Jonah that the minor prophets by and large are preachers to Israel and Judah in their season of downward spiral really in preparation and preaching against their upcoming captivities. Some of the messages of the prophets as we saw in Obadiah have word for the surrounding people, those nations that will know the judgment of God. Uh, the prophet's messages weren't for Israel and Judah alone. But we've focused on Jonah as one of the prophets, perhaps most preeminent among those prophets, that has a message for us. The providence of God, God's dealing with the nations, we saw something a couple of weeks ago even of the particular uh, sign almost that it is in the middle of that Old Testament dispensation that God's blessing isn't limited to a peculiar people. That Israel in her days of understanding her own gospel would have recognized that the Gentiles could be accepted on the same terms as they because there were terms of pure grace alone. It's when God's people lose sight of that, that sectarianism party spirit, pride, those things Paul even warns us Gentiles of as we've read in Romans 11 today. I mean, think of it. Could have drifted a little bit in our thoughts to outbreaks of anti-Semitism among Christians in church history. What is that but somehow thinking there's now merit with us and demerit with Israel. But Jonah's in the middle of that story, one of the things we'll see in his prayer, and even in that oft-repeated and well-known phrase, salvation is of the Lord. The sovereignty of God in all of his workings is on display. But as we saw last week, Jonah wrestles with these things. I want to come this evening to look at chapter 1 and focus our thoughts primarily on the storm itself as it comes upon Jonah, but to understand where we've been, we saw in our first study the really historical and theological setting. And then last week, we wanted to look somewhat into his motives. He explains something of them in the opening phrases of chapter 4, where he confesses that he had said to God and put before him before this whole thing ever began to transpire, that he knew that he feared God would be merciful to Nineveh, that he wouldn't send the judgment that Jonah was called upon to go there and preach that he might reach out in some unexpected way. And for this reason, for this motive, Jonah disobeys and flees from the presence of the Lord. 
It's a difficult needle to thread in some ways. A good motive, as it were. A heart bent on the glory of God. God's glory and the purposes of His kingdom being put on display for all to see. And then Jonah thinking somehow that his perception of how that should transpire is better than God's. And so Jonah follows that path, I say, of descending thought and ultimately finds himself in the sides of this ship in the midst of this storm. So I want tonight just to try and collect together some thoughts with regard to, again, Jonah's experience and seek to bring them together upon us. I wish we could corporately gather and read some 60 or 80 pages that Hugh Martin spends just meditating on the storm. The actions of all the characters that are involved. I've mentioned more than once the chapter entitled The World Rebuking the Church. We'll perhaps comment a little more on that along the way. But the pieces of the natural heart and mind that are put on display among these sailors in the boat and in the midst of the storm. But of course it's Jonah that's at the center of the story. So I want to put before you tonight some statements, some principles, if you will, that flow out of what we find here in Jonah's story. And the first thought I would share with you is this. God sometimes uses a long leash. God sometimes uses a long leash. Jonah isn't immediately rebuked and chastened upon receiving his call and refusing to obey it. Jonah leaves Jerusalem. He flees Judah. He goes down, as we've suggested last time, from the presence of the Lord, from that tangible manifestation, from that place where he'd chosen to set his name, of his public personal identification with that God and those people. He leaves that. He seeks to run from it. He goes down. It's... I think scripturally in the Old Testament, it's geographically true in Israel. You go down from Jerusalem, but often the spiritual import is there as well. And Jonah leaves, and we see the progress almost poetically put before us in the opening verses. He seeks out a ship. He finds it. He boards it. He enters it. He goes down into it. They launch out into the sea. God sometimes uses a long leash. Good motives, as we saw last time, are no excuse for wrong actions. But once pursuing those actions, again, however, Jonah has wrongly justified those actions to himself. Notice that God permits him to pursue his course of action. He doesn't find any hindrance when he gets to the coast. He wants to get as far away as he can. There just happens to be a boat there that's going to that place. He goes into it. They're welcome to receive him. He's ready. He thinks perhaps he has achieved his purpose. He's fleeing from the presence of God. This mission that he's called upon to perform is never going to happen. The outcome that he fears God would pursue unwisely isn't going to be. And there Jonah goes. God's given him a long leash. 
He's let him for a season pursue his sin. But once we set out on a course of sin, there are going to be a lot of allies. Christian life in many ways is swimming upstream. It's fighting against the currents of the world and of the flesh. Once we decide to abandon God's purpose, once we decide to go on a course of disobedience, there's a lot of strong current that will carry us along that path. No hindrance is given to Jonah to find, achieve his goal, and enter the ship. And that in itself is a sober thing. I've said often in preaching and in counseling to people that it's good to get caught. God allowing us to get caught in our sin is putting a roadblock that keeps us from going further down that road. And so let us perceive that always as a mercy. And let us just as well then be sobered when God permits us to continue in a course of sin. I've mentioned in my own youth, seasons of conviction, life not quite heading the right direction, seasons of tremendous conviction in gospel services. I'm tempted to go down a rabbit trail there, I'll leave it off. Just to say, understanding the dangers of high pressure altar calls and so forth. I've been present through many a one of those and at times known great conviction in the pulls of God's Spirit. And I remember once being sobered is almost too mild a term, genuinely scared when I realized at one point that the conviction that God had so repeatedly given me was beginning to wane. It wasn't in my power to change my own heart. And that was a sober thought indeed. It was a stirring of God to make changes Himself in my heart that brought that to pass. But I say God sometimes uses a long leash. Sometimes allows us to pursue sin longer than we should. Perhaps it's because our state of mind and heart is such that we need a larger lesson, perhaps a harder lesson to teach us. But if God sometimes uses a long leash, He never relinquishes control. There is always a day of reckoning. Jonah's situated in the ship. He thinks he's accomplished his purpose. The ship's going to Tarshish. I'm going to be far, far away. None of this that I feared, none of this that I don't think is the way to go is going to happen. But then again, it is. God sends a storm. A storm of such nature that we see mariners that are accustomed to the seas are themselves frightened. Jonah is being caught. Jonah's come to the end. Well, in the storm, he's not quite at the end of the leash. There's another destination that awaits him that perhaps, well, I don't think there's any perhaps about it. Would you rather be in a boat in a storm or in the belly 
of a fish. God sends a storm. But notice here that Jonah's sin and the Lord striving with Jonah, the Lord sovereignly, the Lord tangibly working to bring Jonah to repentance, to bring Jonah to his senses. Good motives are one thing. Humble obedience and submission to the wisdom and power and purpose of God is another thing. Jonah's sin involves others in danger. The men in the boat with him are imperiled. Other ships upon this sea in this storm are imperiled. Hugh Martin takes a long look at these particulars and all the theological pieces and questions that come in. God is not to blame for the danger of these other sailors. One sin deserves His eternal wrath. All of the sailors are sinners. But it is for Jonah himself, it is for this particular act of disobedience and distrust that this storm, that this danger is sent. And so Jonah by his sin is imperiling others. And how often this is the case we see in Scripture in our own lives. It is a sober thought to be sure. In the early days of the conquest, as they go in to conquer, Achan takes of the spoils. And Israel that had won such spectacular victory miraculously at Jericho is defeated at Ai. The little village puts them to flight. Of course, God's hand is seen. Achan's sin is ultimately exposed. David's sin David, not Achan, David's sin in numbering the people. How many are lost in the chastening of God upon the nation for David's sin? And you think of the times in our experience when our sin, our willful pursuit of sin, not only endangers and harms us, but harms others. I've said often, I say again tonight, there's no such thing as secret sin. There's no such thing as private sin, really. In our sin, we force other people to live and coexist with a sinner. That in itself is a crime against them. You multiply that out how many times and how many ways. But when the sins particularly land upon those given authority, given a position of influence, given what should be a position of blessing and help, think of the danger and the harm that comes to children, to a wife, to a family. And the sins the abdications even of a, of a godly father. Think of the sins that, and the penalty of sins in the lives of little ones when they're not led in the right ways. Or perhaps they're told to pursue the right ways, 
with outward instruction, with lifting them up toward the church as it were, relying on the church, relying on others to bring them the scriptures, show them the way, not showing them the way, whether by precept or by example, ourselves. So much more that is caught in the life of a child than is just merely taught. Let us live Christ and live the gospel before them. You can apply it in churches and congregations. The sin of a leader. You think when the minister of the gospel falls into sin, sin is exposed and what horror and harm comes to that congregation and others. The world certainly rejoices to find those things. And I think at times among the Lord's people, even seemingly small things, obscure things, unknown things. Scripture speaks about quenching the Spirit. I've said very often, I would repeat it to on the housetops, we have been blessed here, I believe, with a godly congregation, a humble, God-fearing congregation. And we have known years of happy existence and help through trial. So I would with Paul boast upon you to others. It grieves me when I hear ministers complaining about their people. Well, I'm about to digress into other things. But yet and now, a fourth decade, can it possibly be right of ministry? Seeing things along the way. I've been taken on occasion where unknown to many and only partially known to some, a grievance or a sin is in the midst. And its impact in quenching the Spirit. Sin. Personal sin. Can and does involve others in danger. And think of that even with application to the church corporately. How many evils have come and will come, are coming upon the world because of the sins of the church? In the last days in the apostasy of the New Testament church, And the man of sin arising out of the chaos of such apostasy in the church and in the world. Those evils overruled by the power of God. And finally put down at the coming of Christ. Yet those evils themselves can be laid at the feet of the church. For her abandoning the light and the gospel she's been given. Becoming like the heathen that surround her just as Israel of old became like the heathen that surrounded her. Let us be jealous. It's easy for us to look at the condition of the church and the sins of other Christians and the problems in the world and speak all against them and not be eager first off to deal with the sin in my own life and in my own soul. That can be the cause and the aiding and abetting so many of these other sins. 
Jonah's sin involved others in danger. But a last thought, and here trying to collect so many things together. Gospel truth is the only answer. Gospel truth is the only answer. It's remarkable when you see the testimony, if you will, of the sailors and of the captain of the ship. The storm comes. It is so ferocious that there's something about this storm they sense and know. They fear. Martin pointed out some interesting thoughts that natural religion, the heathen mind, is at once and the same time impressed with man's smallness and yet man's greatness. His smallness in that he's powerless to deal with the storm. We can't change the weather. We can't make that wind stop blowing. We can't keep these waves from rocking this ship and tossing us over. We're powerless. And yet in their striving, all the wares, all the treasures, all the merchandise that's in the ship, it's of so little value. We cast it into the sea, if by any means lessening the weight of the ship might preserve our lives. Martin had a lengthy paragraph bemoaning the fact that often it takes such storms for even the Lord's people to rightly value the things of this life. Or could we say rightly devalue the things of this life and of the world? The men fear. They seek in every way to remedy the situation. They exhaust their skills. And ultimately, they're brought to their knees because they recognize they're in peril for their very lives. They begin to pray. And as we see in the prayers, and every man praying unto his God, and the shipmaster coming down to Jonah and remarking to him and rebuking him, as we'll see more in a moment, he calls upon Jonah, rebukes him for not praying to his God. But even in the multiplication of gods and the multiplication of the idols, the shipmaster recognizes there's only one. He tells Jonah, others are calling on their gods. Why aren't you calling on yours? But then when he asks Jonah to call on his, he says, if so be that God, not the gods, not the many, the one, the one that's making this whole thing to happen, that he will think on us that we perish not. What does a storm bring to those in the ship? To the heathen, to the mariners, it brings prayers of terror. It's not impossible for God to honor prayers that are uttered in such circumstances. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, the apostle tells us in the New Testament. I remember Dr. Cairns giving us a very powerful illustration in seminary one day of a prayer uttered at a time of the threat of loss of life. He was preaching to young men that, well, need wisdom and need guidance. I guess that's a big part of what seminary is all about. It's easy for a young preacher to depreciate and cry against deathbed confessions and deathbed conversions and so forth and 
Doubtless many of those are futile and vain, but not necessarily always. He told a story of the town drunk had fallen into the river, staggering home. The flow of the current was strong that night. He was in fear of his life and nearly ready to lose it. Cried out to God to save him. Someone coming by heard that prayer, rescued him from the river. He was a converted man, lived the remainder of his days a godly believer in the city. Dr. Cairn's point made to us is, what if that person hadn't walked by? Probably a lot of those town folks would have been, as we perhaps very ignorantly think at times, pretty surprised when they arrived in glory and saw him there. But as the workers in the vineyard, it doesn't take the eighth hour only to become a true believer. God pulls many in in the eleventh hour. But that isn't always the case. These prayers of terror issue in a fear of God. But the mariners represent even under their convictions, their desire for Jonah's welfare, even after they understand it, Jonah's put it before them, they row hard to the land. A noble thing in many ways. And yet perhaps an illustration of seeking their own remedy in others. There were prayers of terror. terror. But also interestingly, Jonah is asleep. Many, perhaps most, and perhaps with a measure of truth, rebuke Jonah for his sloth. See it as another example, an illustration of his sinful heart. Hugh Martin takes another take. I think perhaps there's something of wisdom in it. He speaks of it as the sleep of sorrow. Jonah's literally spiritually exhausted. He's done battle with his own soul. He's done battle with his God. He's had a motive that for all of his examination is a good one. But yet it's allowed a spirit of Jesuitry to enter in. That his desired end, the glory of God in Israel and among the heathen, that his desired end has justified his disobedient means. His spiritual heart hasn't been able to really submit to his reasoning. And much like the disciples... Can we understand in Gethsemane in a very similar circumstance? They are wrapped up in this thing. They have cast their lot in with Jesus. They see the folly and sinfulness of the world. They see the hypocrisy of the church. They know Jesus is the answer. And He asked them to pray with Him for an hour. And they can't. Their eyes are heavy. He says, for sorrow. They haven't connected the dots. They haven't let God be God. And here's Jonah. 
spiritually exhausted, sleeping in the midst of the storm. Perhaps in despair, perhaps under great conviction, perhaps not quite as hard as some would try and paint him, just misguided, just untrusting. And the mariner wakes him. What a season. Everybody's praying but you. Aren't you the Jew? Aren't you those people that speak about the one true God, Jehovah? Jonah arises. Jonah's become a stumbling block to these onlooking heathen. What a what an irony. Jonah was called upon to go warn the heathen. He didn't like the marching orders. He flees. God now sends a heathen to warn Jonah. Jonah starts to wake up. And Jonah's penitent. And he says, yes, this evil that's come upon you is because of me. My God rules. He made the sea and the dry land. He controls all this. I'm the cause. It's interesting. You could draw parallels and contrasts. There's another one of God's people in the same Mediterranean Sea. In a ship, in a storm. And the sailors and the people fear for their lives. They began casting their wares and the merchandise into the sea. Some of the sailors want to flee. But Paul, Paul in their midst, not as fleeing God and not trusting God. Paul there because of his trust in the sovereign hand of God sending him to the Gentiles is enabled to bear testimony with them. And how many souls, not merely their lives, but received good gospel testimony in that faithful voyage through the storm. But here's Jonah. What a lesson. God gave him a long leash. But God didn't ever relinquish control. And that's one of the precious things about being a child of God, even in our waywardness and sinfulness, is He doesn't leave us alone. There may be a long season of apparent darkness, lack of communication, but that's never where it ends can find in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11 even those things we would from our human perspective speak of as premature death as those that had abused the Lord's table and made such a mockery of it and such a lack of love for their brethren that Paul said you can't even call this the Lord's table 
For this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep. That in itself can be a mercy. He only lets his true children go so far in their sin. But Jonah is recovered. The cost is great to him. The mariners are spared. What a testimony. Heathen going west and heathen to the north and east are going to get through this prophet. But Jonah's cast into the sea. Lord willing, as we return in a couple weeks to the prophet, it'll be there that we find him. And what a prayer we find in Jonah 2. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. <coughs> Lord, tonight we come and pray that in our reading and rehearsing of this really tragic and fantastic history, that you might have a word for us. Lord, how easy it is for us in such a crooked generation I think we've got it figured out Lord the Ninevehs of our world are loud and perverse the Israel of our world is weak and wrestling with its own sins in some ways just a few steps behind the world and here a prophet of God called to Cry against such things and promote the truth and righteousness of God. And yet not letting God be God. Not grasping the whole picture. Not having the gospel. Not having his own position as a recipient of unmerited favor. Govern every thought, and every action. Lord, help us to learn from what you've recorded of Jonah's struggles. May we with comfort and help of the Scriptures thus have hope. Give us wisdom in our troubled times. Lord, we thank you for every amount of patience and long-suffering We ask that we might know something as you charged even those Corinthians that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Let us hold ourselves to the light of your word. Lord, let us hear and see different pieces even of the light of your providence in this world. Lord, bless us as we again part and go to our homes. Encourage us with the things we've considered today. Lord, some weighty things and yet hopeful things that we, as we read and were charged this morning, when not in this season, have cause for pride as believers in the midst of a world of unbelievers. Nor would we have cause for despair as thinking the remnant is so small Somehow God cannot be in control. Lord, give us right thoughts of yourself. Do bless us, I say, as we part one from another now. We pray in Jesus' worthy name.
Amen.